Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Work Podcast. And today, we're going to go a little bit back in time and go behind the scenes of the Sapphire Legend duology. My first duology, first books, and we haven't done these yet, so that's why we'll go a little bit into them today. Now having to go through this for this behind the scenes, it really feels like so long since I've actually looked at these books because kind of writing a book is a little bit like cramming for a test where you're so focused and so immersed in the world of the book. And then once you step out of it, it's almost, it almost becomes like a different lifetime almost. Like, oh, that past world that we were in. So it was actually, it was nice. It was exciting to be able to go back to these books and uh, return to where it all started. Just to add to all that, so the first book I ever wrote, my first novel ever, is and became published as The Sapphire Legend Part 1. It wasn't my first foray into writing. I'd been writing, I'd been working on screenplays at the time. I'd done stage plays, jukebox musicals, comedy sketches. Done a lot of other kind of writing, but I never really thought I was going to write a novel because there's just a lot of words in a novel. Generally, writing a screenplay is about one page of a screenplay. The regular amounts of dialogue and action is about a minute of screen time. So two-hour movie is about 120 pages. And it's supposed to be sparsely written a screenplay because there's so many people interpreting what the story is going to be and adapting it, bring it to life, that there's no time to start you know, pontificating and fancy and all that sort of stuff. you got to write it well. you got to write it tight. So much less words go into a screenplay. A novel, especially for young adults, your starting point is about minimum, okay, generally minimum, 60,000, 70,000 words. 70,000 words are usually the shorter ones. A lot of the standard length is about eight to 90,000 words, and sometimes we'll even go above that. What does that look like in print? Well, it depends on the formatting, but you're usually talking about a little bit over 200 pages to get there. So the first book I wrote was actually originally thought of to be a screenplay. I've got this idea. Unlike my other books, I have no idea where the idea for this story came from. It was just in my head, sort of when you look at it, it might be, oh, this this reminds me of this kind of story or that story. Get a little bit of a Hunger Games vibe, got a little bit of an Avatar vibe or so, something like that. It could just be all the stuff was marinating in my brain and then it just came out into the story. But I started writing it as a screenplay and then thinking, there's too much. There's a whole world that needs to be built here. There's too much. I need more words than what a screenplay gives me. And that's when I actually started to write the novel. Now, I'd also always been a big reader. So it was kind of like, oh, finally the writing, all the different writing, learning how to write stories, now kind of merging together with my love of reading. That's how we get the first novel. And then till I actually got the first novel published, there were a lot, a lot, a lot of rejections along the way. And then thank God, Fire Nice, Carolina Fire Nice picked it up. And and this is where we are since then. Thank God we got eight books. We got some more in the works. So... Uh, one other thing about the series. So it's two books, part one and part two. Together, it would probably be like a, a little bit of a longer YA book. I don't know why. I had just I just had in my head that it should be two different books. Maybe just because it's two different parts of the story. And it just it just made sense to me then to do it like this. These are my shortest books right now uh, for young adult. And it kind of interestingly turned out that the shortness of them and kind of the way they're written and this first foray into writing novels ended up kind of making them more accessible also for younger audiences because the first time I started working on the novel and I actually completed the story and then, you know, go back for like the millions of edits, I was struggling to find more words. I had to have so many words in the story. I don't get it. Just getting to 50,000 words and 60,000 words, it seems so much. Now I can usually 
push a story to at least 70, 80,000 words, which is a good, it's a nice length. The other thing that even though I knew kind of where the story was headed, as in I knew what the end of part two was going to be, I didn't immediately write it. I wrote part one first, and then I started writing other stories because part of you, especially when it's your first novel, if you're not writing under contract, of like, okay, we'll totally pick up two books with an alternate for a third, or yes, let's make this into a trilogy. You're not sure, like, is this going to be the book that's going to land, or is another book? It's just the way the industry works, and it just comes out like that. Some people have these dazzling, sparkling debuts that come out, and everyone's all excited about them. They get picked up for film, and everybody knows about them. Sometimes those authors, the next works are successes, sometimes not. And then sometimes, or more generally, you have the authors who building one step at a time, just going one step at a time. Uh, the cool thing about that is, especially if you do find that you like their stories or their writing, is that you can really see how, how an author grows and develops throughout their career. Because there has to be something good, story-wise, writing-wise, to even be on board with them to begin with. But then, the more they're going to write, the more they're going to discover and learn and, and gain experience, the better they're going to become, which is awesome for fans and for readers. So... I wrote the part one, and then I actually wrote another two books in between before I wrote part two. The one thing I wish I understood then, which I know now, having more experience writing series, is that it's a good idea to write at least the second book of your series before the first book goes to print. Because once the first book is in print, you can't change anything. Sort of, I spoke about this with the End of Ever After series, but with the Cinderella book, things, you know, becomes canon at that point. But it's not just that. The first book came out, and this is still my, my beginnings of writing novels. The first book came out, and I, mean, I, I like the story. I love, still think it's a great story. I still think it would work great on screen. But the first book came out, and I hadn't developed the world as well as I could have. Now, so you could say, oh, you know, your editor could have pushed you more or whatever. So maybe yes. The benefit with the end of Ever After series, I had a different editor than who really who pushed me hard. And, you know, that could be for a lot of reasons, whatever she saw in the story or realized what could be done. Here, though, the first book, you know, I did work with an editor, cleaned up the book and all that sort of stuff. But I didn't I didn't have a, the thought to really think out the world and not just think out the story and the character's journey. By the time I got to the second, to part two, which was actually the fourth book that I had written, and I got back into this world. Well, first I had to go back to book one and reacquaint myself with all the characters and their their quirks and their abilities and all that sort of stuff but by the time I got to book two I, I understood the world much better so the the world of book two is a little bit more developed than the world of book one now that will often happen in the sense that as you go more into a series more of the world can unfold because you can't just overload a reader with in the first book with everything but I think if I had written book two part two before part one had gone to print I could have gone back to part one and fleshed out the world of part one a little bit more, which then would have allowed me to again flesh out the world in book two. But um, it didn't happen. And that's, yeah, I still, I still think it's a great story. And I think that also sort of made it accessible to a younger audience. I meant it for young adult. It kind of, I think now sort of sits at lower young adult and even upper middle grade. For more advanced middle grade readers, I think they can very much appreciate and enjoy the story. That's just kind of a, as a technical thing. It's sort of a half a writing tip. I'll just tell you the two other books that I wrote in between. One of them, book number two, which a lot of writers have this. They have the sophomore slump. I was not going to have the sophomore slump. But the book number two, I loved the story. Well, you usually have to love your story because you got to spend a lot of time writing it. I did love the story of it, but and I worked on it so much, and it just did not work. There was something that was just missing from it. There were It was good characters, a good storyline. It was just was not happening. That was a book you ended up having to 
to shelve. And it's always frustrating and kind of annoying after you put so much time into something to shelf it. But I did have to shelve it. But then, a while ago, I returned to it. Actually, I wrote an article about this. It's on the Writer's Digest website. It's called Shelved But Not Forgotten. It's about sometimes we spend so much time on a book or on a story and we love it and it's just not working. And we got to put it to the side. There are times that we'll never, we may never return to that. We just got to harbor, you know, the love for the story. And sometimes it's waiting for us to become the writer that that story needs. So I finally returned to that story eight published books later uh, and a few more written that are not yet published. And I was able to rework the whole story and get that story then signed. Because where I was then originally, I don't know, I guess I just, I wasn't in the right writing place. I didn't have enough experience to get it to where it needed to be. So that's the one story. The third book that I wrote is published and it's called Silhouettes. Right now it's the one contemporary novel. And we actually did a behind the scenes of Silhouettes, the first behind the scenes I did. You can check that out. Okay, now let's talk about the Sapphire Legend. It's actually a book I like talking about a lot when I go to visit schools because it's very explorable as far as the writer's journey and you know how writers just develop stories and think and all that sort of stuff. Or it could just be because all this time later, I could break it down much better. Anyways, the Sapphire Legend is generally, it ended up being very much a character-driven story. It's really about the protagonist, Sapir, and where she starts out and where she needs to be. Sapir is someone, she is born into this world where, well, we focus on her tribe, but officially there's multiple tribes. Uh, it's kind of like this tribal village sort of place. And the tribe is ruled by this council family. And the council family, who gets into the council family? There are 13 families that have a special gift, whatever that gift may be. And the gift is usually indicated by a token. So sometimes the token could be part of, is something naturally uh, part of someone's, like it's on the body. And sometimes it's something that's, you know, that either born with and it develops or sometimes it's a token that they, they've they created. So for example, in Sapir's family, they have the deer gift. Okay, we'll just sidetrack for a second. Side note, this is kind of part of the mistakes that I made in the early years of being a writer is that because I wanted it to be kind of familiar, like a deer, I ended up spelling deer, D-E-R-E, which I should not have done. So just a warning out there for writers. I want it to be a deer-like creature, but I want it to be more vicious. So sharp teeth, more of a predatory nature. So like, oh, I'll just do the same word, but a slightly different spelling. And it doesn't, you don't do that. Just spell it the regular way, even if they want to be more vicious. If it's a deer, call it a deer and just say, the deer in this story have sharp teeth and they're more predatory. That's all. It's a much better way to do things. I know now. Thanks for everyone who's, who's stuck around. Anyways, so council family members, they have, they have a gift. And the gift is often something that could be animal-like or it could be you know, something else that's, it's, it's an enhanced natural ability. So in Sapir's family, they have the deer gift. The deer gift in this is, is super speed. They're really, really fast. And they, could, they have very sharp hearing. Their gift is displayed that these spots, kind of like on the back of a deer, will break out on the inside of their arms. And that develops as they get older. Now, what does Sapir have to do with any of this? The council families, it's always the gift has been passed down through the generation, father to son, father to son. Right, it's just a natural thing that the, the boys in the family will have the gift. They develop it as they grow older. Or the ones that develop it can be on the council, and sometimes if it doesn't show up, then they'll, you know, they'll be for other things. Sapir, for whatever reason, as she gets older, the gift comes out in her. All of a sudden, her hearing improves tremendously, and she can run incredibly fast. And now she has spots on the inside of her arms. 
So as part of this character-driven story, it's starting off that Superior is living with a heavy secret. The secret of this gift that she shouldn't have, and she doesn't know if she should tell anyone about it because who knows how they're going to react to it. Part of what I explain to the to students when I speak to them is that how do we make characters relatable? We don't necessarily know someone with a secret dear gift, but we do know of people who can feel like an outcast. We do know of people who live with secrets so they feel like they can't tell. As I know people, we know within ourselves there are times that we feel like we're not part of the group. There's times that we feel like there's something about us that makes us different. And it could be something small, something large. It doesn't, you're the only one who showed up in a red shirt today. It could be something as simple as that. But we do know a little bit of what an outsider feeling feels like. So when a character like Sapir has that, we can relate to her because we're like, oh, we know what it means to have a secret we're not ready to tell. And as an author, we can choose. Is this secret going to come out? How's it going to come out? Why is she keeping it hidden? All this sort of stuff. And that's part of the framework of the story. So the story itself actually begins on the morning of the, what's supposed to be Sapir's wedding day. So part of what she's worried about is that, okay, this secret is probably going to come out. You can't hide for forever. Until now, she's kept it hidden by wearing long sleeves. She doesn't run in front of anybody. She spends a lot of time by herself. But she's going to be married. You can't, it's going to come out. And she's not really sure what's going to happen. And she's kind of at this point where it's like, well, okay. So I don't really know what else I'm supposed to do. Theoretically, she could run away. Yes, all these things, but she doesn't choose those things. The whole tribe is turning out for this big wedding uh, celebration, and then the whole village gets attacked. Not spoiler alert, this is part of the back blur. So now what happens is, so why does the village have to get attacked? Because Sapir is living her life in a certain kind of way. Because she has to change. As the author, I'm going to force her to change. She wasn't changing on her own. She was staying hidden. So we're going to force her now into situations that will make her confront herself. Make her confront why her fears, why she's holding the secret, you know, what will happen if it gets revealed because it is going to come out, who's going to be with her along the, the journey, who's going to help her along the journey, all that sort of stuff. In this story, I did it by attacking the whole village and only a small group of survivors survive and they run into the wild. Now the wild, unlike the deer thing, the wild is supposed to be like a jungle forest kind of hybrid because I want there to be both sorts of plants and animals and whatever in there. I think it's okay that I called the wild. But what's the thing about being in the wild? A group of survivors of only 20, 30 people, is, it's much harder to keep a secret than if you're in a village of a few hundred or, th or thousand people even, right? And it's not just that. Sapir's going to have to ask herself, if my gift can save and protect and help these survivors, do I use it at the risk of being exposed? She never had to answer that question in the village because the village, had, they were protected. Well, they weren't until they were attacked. But now she can't rely on other people to protect her. She can't rely on other people to hide in their shadows. She's not going to be forced to step out. And the decisions that she makes is part of her journey as a character. I want her to go, as, the, as an author, I want her to go for being the shy, quiet girl who's sort of an outcast and doesn't really hang out with people and doesn't have a lot of friends. Her only friend is this hawkling, kind of like a mini hawkbird. I want her to go from being this quite afraid outcast to being someone who is accepted not just within the tribe, but someone who accepts herself. Yes, I'm the only girl in history to, as far as we all know, to have been born with a gift. That maybe sort of makes me a little bit freakish, but is that even a bad thing? What can I do with it? Do I allow this difference to define me? All these sort of questions are things that Sapir is going to have to answer now because I took her out of her normal state, took her out of the village, and put her in, a situ in survival situations where all this is going to come out. Part of all this is that... She's going to be forced to associate with different kinds of people now. So we have one person who's Rio. 
He's kind of, he's basically sort of love interest, but there's really not that much romance in these books because that's just me in general. There's, uh, there's not so much romance in the books that, that I've read so far. So Ryu from the outside kind of always had this sort of faith in Superior's had a high regard for her. Well, because he likes her. He didn't know about the gift though. So when he will find out bad about the gift, it's gonna, he's gonna have to reassess. But until then, well, okay, and the books are out already, kind of after then, he's still always pushing her. Don't hide, don't get to stand up. You got a gift, that means you're part of the council. So you're a girl, but so what? You know, you're one of us. And you have a lot of that is coming from him. So when you have that sort of encouragement, Sapir can either reject it or Sapir can embrace it. She could either be like, oh, stop talking like this. You know, you're just going to get me in trouble or all that sort of stuff. Or she can be like, hey, this guy has faith in me. Why do I not have faith in myself? She's going to make another friend. Venator, she has another friend. He's got the wolf gift. Which I kind of spelled with an E, and that was not a good idea to spell wolf like that, but whatever. Here we are. Okay, I acknowledge the mistakes I made. So he's got a wolf gift. And a very keen sense of smell. He's a very good hunter. And he's going to be one of the first ones to find about her gift. They've sort of, they're becoming friends at this point, And the way he reacts to her now is going to affect the way she reacts to herself. Because he finds out about the gift. If he freaks out or says, oh, you're such a freak. You know, don't come near me again. Freak, freak, freak. She's going to be like, hey, maybe I'm a freak. Why did I think that I could be accepted? But if he's going to be like, hey, you know, big deal. Like, cool. Hey, hey those spots look nice on you. She'll be like, oh, why was, I, why was I hiding? What was I so afraid of? I see I have an ally on my side. So you start bringing these different characters in. A friend character, a mentor character, ally character. The characters who might seem antagonistic and either remain antagonistic. The characters who start off antagonistic and come around. And they're all going to shape and guide and affect Sapir's journey as a character, as going from this sort of outcast character to being someone who could accept herself and be someone accepted within the tribe. Some of the themes that we have within the book and some of the themes that are looked at a lot and also that Sapir is acknowledging is, am I defined by the gift that I've been given? And that's also something much deeper that every person is born with a sort of talent or natural affinity, ability towards something. It can be anything, you know, does this define us? How much does it shape us? Do we need to pay tribute to it? Is this something that we're supposed to acknowledge, develop? Is this something that we have to hide away? Everyone's going to answer that in their own way according to the nature, the nurturer, and the people they're surrounded with and all that sort of stuff. Another thing that we have is that we have this character that's appears starting to go, uh, grow closer to until she finds out what kind of guy he really is. And he is someone who doesn't have a gift because so far the people that she's becoming more friendly with are people with gifts, which is kind of important because, you know, gift and gift she has to hear from other people the gift to kind of get the right framework, I guess, for understanding her own gift. But now we have people who don't have gifts. First of all, she sees the other survivors who don't have gifts. She sees the way those who pitch in to help and to keep this the, rem the remnants of the tribe alive. There's a healer character that she that she learns to very much respect. And like, hey, that's not a specific gift as far as this enhanced ability, but this is a gift in the sense that she learned how to be a healer and she she's selfless in her care. Does this not make her someone exceptional? Does this not, is this not something to be celebrated, even though it's just not this, you know, superhuman ability that she's been given? Does this only come with our natural character traits and natural talents, or is this something that, according to the people we become, the person that we become, no matter what we're born with, no matter what we're born as, where do we put our focus? These are all things that Sapir is dealing with, and all these are things that are going to affect her character journey. Going back to this guy that she's sort of coming closer with until she finds out who, she, who he is, he does not have a gift, and he's actually angry about about it. The other people, they just accept, like, oh, the council people, they're the council people because they have the gift, and, and this is the way it is. 
And then you have this other character who's angry about it. All he ever wanted was a gift. I needed a gift. I wasn't going to be someone without a gift. How can, I, how can I be someone without a gift? You you know, you guys are exalted. You're the, you're the council people. You're the one who were raised above others. And Sapir has a hard time with this because until she, yeah, the whole attack happened, she never expected to sit on council. She never expected to quote unquote be someone in that regard. And she's looking at this and she's like, I'm talking to a person right now, right? You are a person with your own, with your own abilities, with your talents and whatever. How can you say that you're not someone just because you have, a, you don't have this gift? Just because you weren't born with this enhanced ability, you weren't born into one of the council families. How can you not think that you're someone? This is someone that because the peer has been this outcast and she's had to get along in the sense that she wasn't training with her gift and she kind of had to get along without her gift, even though she always had her gift and sort of could use it even if never in public. She kind of has both angles now. She has, she could see from both sides. So when this person is telling her that, you know, I was never anyone, I can't be anyone because I have no gift and that's why he was so angry and it led to certain decisions, she realizes that she rejects this way of thinking. That it's, the gift does not make someone. It's the actions that make someone. Which is when we also see that one of her greatest moments and one of the moments of, you know, the climactic moment and the moment of her, of acceptance within the tribe and sort of within herself is when she does something selfless that actually has nothing to do with her gift. She risks herself to save someone else. And that was kind of very purposeful to make that point of whatever talents and abilities and everything that we have, how to develop them, we should celebrate the good stuff and strengthen it and all and all that sort of stuff. But just being born a certain way is not enough. We have to become, I guess you could say become a certain way. We have to become someone. With or without it, we have to become someone. Someone who looks out for other people, someone who can achieve a selfless act, someone who could be brave. Or courageous, all the sort of stuff. This, so this is what Sapir comes to understand and learn. Most of this is actually book one. Uh, book two, we do have the continuation of this. So part of that, the fact that it's part one and part two, the division occurs because part one is much to do with the survivors, much to do with Sapir's acceptance within the, within her tribe, the remnants of her tribe, and this sort of acts as like a microcosm. That book two is become the macrocosm because in book two they meet a new tribe. And they see how things work in this new tribe, that the regard for those in council, for those with the gift, is different than the way their tribe was. And Sapir has to gain acceptance again within this tribe because her tribe is all on board now. Like, hey, she's part of the council. Hey, she's one of us. Let's all go to the council meeting so you're coming with us. And this new tribe is like, hey, what's the girl doing here? What do you mean she has a gift? And everybody got to freak out all over again. Well, Sapir, are you going to stand up for yourself now? Right? Are you going to say, hey... First of all, this is, you know, I'm one of you guys because this is how I was born. Now, and by the way, I've also earned this spot. Or you're just going to let yourself be back down again and you're just going to become an outcast again. As far as character development goes, that's where the thread continues in part two. And that's kind of why it's part two because we're changing the scene. We're going to a new place. Another thing that she sees is that the, their setup in the second tribe is different than the first tribe. Her tribe, even though you have the council families, they have the gift and they're a little bit, you know, they're a little bit more kind of important people, but everybody lived together. And it wasn't that people carried themselves. Oh, just because you have a gift, you weren't necessarily, they didn't entitle you and just make you also, you know, so much more. And she also sees that in their fight for survival, she sees, again, kind of like someone like the healer or anybody who steps up. It's like, well, they don't have the gift and look at how they've stepped up. How can I hold myself above them when they've done these great things? So she has this solidified in her mind and now she goes to this new tribe and she sees that those who are in council, those with a gift, do raise themselves up above others. They live in nicer houses. They're like more important. They only marry, you know, each other. They keep, they're a little bit more elitist. This tribe, which is kind of like, a, they seem to be a more established tribe in that regard, or a little bit, 
Their setup seems to be a little bit, it's better fortified. They have a wall around them. So some of the people in her tribe are like, hey, we like it here. We want to stay here. We don't want to go back and rebuild our village. And she's got to make that decision. Do I want to stay here? But staying here means I've got to agree with or take on or accept this way of life. Now, theoretically, oh, can you write a whole nother book about how she's going to take on the system and bring it down and change the way they think and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, that wasn't the journey that first appeared. That wasn't the journey I took her on. Now, we also have other elements of it, of course, because there's now once they get to a new tribe, she gets to start training with her gift a little bit. They're preparing for the massive attack because they're sure that whoever attacked them is going to come attack this other tribe. The people who are attacking them are a tribe. The third tribe, that people who reject the gifts, people who look down upon the gifts, people who are like, you don't get to be better than the rest of us because of it. And that's why they just want to wipe out all the tribes who try to glorify themselves with the gifts. So we see like all this stuff is kind of at play here. I'll do one other thing that maybe I could have done a little bit differently in the second book is that we do finally have, you know, the big battle scene that occurs. And I say not to spoil it, but these books have been out for a while already. So I do still encourage you to check it out. But Superior is part of the battle. That's also kind of, no, you're not going to fight. Yes, I want to fight. I, I need this. Okay, I need it. This is my closure. I don't always want to be a warrior, but I need to be one now. So she is part of the battle, but I kind of maneuvered things. I kind of arranged things so that she's not... The battle doesn't last so long on her part. She kind of gets taken out. She gets injured. She gets taken out. And because of that, and because it's told from her perspective, that's the end of the battle in this in the book. And I guess I could have made it a little bit longer, shown a little bit more, shown a little bit more of the fighting, just because you're building up so much to this big climactic battle. I think I could have done more with it and put more in there. But I didn't. This is the decision, and this is uh, this is the way the books are out. And there's a whole thing about, you know, do writers go back and redo their works or not? Or once the book is out, you leave it. I actually spoke to Jonathan Mayberry about that. That's a bonus episode from a couple, for a while ago. So he was talking about, you know, once the work is out there, just let it out there. There's so many other things to write. You know, you don't got to go back to it. But he did say only if, only if you weren't allowed to write the story that you wanted to. Not if you made a mistake in the storytelling, but if for whatever reason you were held back. Maybe the editor said something or the publishing company said something that... You have to compromise on the book. So that didn't happen here. I would say that one day, you know, in the ideal world, when this does get adapted to screen, I think that would be a great opportunity to re-explore the story. That would be a cool thing to do. But in the meantime, these books are out there. Welcome you to check them out. And there's also really cool, if you check out on my website, I worked with an artist to design a lot of these characters, a lot of the characters from the books, specifically the ones that have the gifts. And this is actually something cool that happened. The designing of the characters happened kind of close to each other because we did it. The books were published a year apart. So the characters were designed within months of each other. So for the first book, the characters appear a certain way. You do sort of see where they get the gifts from. Like if you look at Sapir, she sort of, if you look close enough, you'll see that she sort of has like a dear, a dear likeness to her, but it's not very obvious. It couldn't be obvious, of course, that it would be just a giveaway that she has the gift and it can't be that. But you'll see some of the other characters from her tribe. You have one that's got the lion gift. So you'll see he sort of has, it's sort of like lion type, like facial structure. Some of the other ones, like the wolf-like one, if you look the editorial, you'll see he sort of has like a wolf look to him. So it's there, but it's subtle. The characters from the second tribe, we decided to like take it up a notch. We decided, like, okay, let's just be so obvious about the animal gift kind of connection. So you'll see this one, a guy there who looks like he's got the owl gift, you know, and yeah, he looks like an owl. Or someone who's got, like, a gorilla monkey gift, like, yeah, very gorilla-like features. 
There's one that's like an eagle. There's one that's a bear. And, you know, there's a couple other ones. They're on the website. If you click on each of... You have to click on the books. So you click on part one, you'll see the images there. You click on part two, you'll see the images there. So it's very cool, very exciting. Check it out. And that's the Sapphire Legend Duology. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Work podcast featuring a behind-the-scenes of the Sapphire Legend Duology. To find out more about the Sapphire Legend, please check out the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My Work podcast, please check us out on Instagram at Oh My Work podcast. Go to eltenabam.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thanks so much for joining us. Catch you next time.